setting on a cold winter's day in the month of February in the year 1603. The 69-year-old Queen Elizabeth I has taken up residence at her favourite palace, Richmond by the River Thames. With its thick walls, Richmond Palace does a solid job of keeping out the howling winds, and with its many rooms, it is well suited to house the court of Elizabeth I, where some 1,700 people at all times travel with her from one castle to the next. In all other years, Richmond has been the happy setting for brisk walks during the day and merry balls at night. But this year, Silence and worry lurks in every dark corner of the Great Hall, and even outside a pensive quiet seems to rule. As Father William Weston, a Jesuit imprisoned in the Tower of London during that cold month of February, later wrote, A strange silence descended on the whole city, as if it were under interdict and divine worship suspended. Not a bell rang out, not a bugle sounded, though ordinarily they were often heard. For Queen Elizabeth of England and Protector of Ireland is ailing, though she herself is not quite ready to admit as to how ill she truly is. Her coronation ring, which was put on her third finger on the 15th of January, 1559, has grown painfully into her flesh. For Elizabeth has not once, not for a day, not even for an hour in the forty-four years that have passed, ever taken off that ring. But now, in mid-February 1603, the physicians insist it must be sewn off if she is to keep her finger and her hand. Elizabeth sheds many tears over this, and as the contemporary historian Camden later wrote, as if it portended that the marriage with her kingdom, contracted by the ring, would be dissolved. Sewing off her ring only worsened the Queen's condition, and with hindsight, we today might think of blood poisoning compounding her already frail health. But to her doctors at the time, it seemed as neither bloodletting nor rest could cure the Queen's body. And as for the Queen's mind, well, it had increasingly turned to sadness. Her depressed spirit suffered a further blow on the 25th of February, 1603, when Catherine Howard, Elizabeth's close confidant and lady-in-waiting for 44 years, died and left the Queen more alone than ever. Elizabeth started to complain of a chill, which quickly developed into a cold. She had swellings of the throat, as Robert Carey, a kin, wrote in his recollections. Elizabeth took to remaining in her private chambers, hardly seeing anyone outside of it. The French ambassador at the time, André de Maïs, wrote in his correspondence to King Henry IV of France that the Queen, she slept only for a few hours at a time and had ordered all her mirrors covered with cloth. This had been noticed by her advisers, for if there was one thing on which foreign dignitaries and members of the royal court could agree was that Elizabeth suffered from the sin of vanity.
and for her to shun her own likeness was an indication of how gravely depressed her mood had become. By this point, she had suffered hair loss, lost many of her teeth from decay, she had a weakness for sweets, and her skin, which had been left ravaged and pockmarked from smallpox when she was thirty years old, had now started to crack and scar, and from the day that she received the news of the death of Catherine Howard, she refused to bathe or be bathed by her ladies-in-waiting. These same ladies-in-waiting recounted to the Queen's chief counsellor, William Cecil, that they could not persuade Elizabeth to take to her bed, and they were compelled to watch her standing completely still for fifteen hours at a time, staring with melancholy at a point on the wall where no tapestry was hung. Now, these desperate ladies-in-waiting begged William Cecil to do something, for the Queen had collapsed on the floor, and from there she would not be budged. It was then that William Cecil sent for Charles Howard. Charles Howard was the still grieving widower of Elizabeth's friend, Catherine Howard. It was he who, in mid-March of 1603, finally persuaded the now seriously ill Queen Elizabeth to take to her bed and to stay there. It seemed apparent to all that Elizabeth would never rise from that sickbed, and for her counsellors, courtiers, for Parliament, and indeed for England, one question pressed itself to the fore. Who would rule England when the Queen passed away? for no heir had been named for the childless queen who even at this late stage in her reign refused to discuss the succession. Elizabeth had had a long life on the throne, a throne she might never have occupied for her journey to power had not been an easy one. Elizabeth may have been born the daughter of a king, King Henry VIII at that, but she was also the daughter of Henry's second wife, the eternally famous Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth was not yet three years in the world before she, in 1536, lost her mother when Anne Boleyn was executed on the orders of Henry VIII. When her mother died, Elizabeth was declared illegitimate with no claim to the crown. She was left in the care of others who did protect her, even as they protected their own interests through her. She was in her youth arrested, imprisoned, and questioned on several accounts of treason on the orders of her half-sister Mary when the latter became queen and attempted to remake England into a holy Catholic country once again. Yet Elizabeth, despite repeated and harsh questioning, managed to retain a bond of sorts to her sister, and this kept her alive during Mary's reign while others were banished and some 280 people of the Protestant faith were executed. Elizabeth, a Protestant herself, survived, though she lived very quietly through her sister's reign. And when she finally acceded to the throne in 1558 as her sister's lawful successor, she was, 
first and foremost, careful. Elizabeth surrounded herself with clever men who gave clever counsel, though she herself was stubborn when she made up her mind. She gave Parliament a sense of privilege that she had called them, and she was careful not to let the members of Parliament harbour too much resentment that they were not called more often. Elizabeth's court was lively, and she was known by allies and foreign enemies alike to bind those around her with her own personal charisma. For Elizabeth was charismatic, witty, joyful, and clever. She loved to have the spotlight on her, and she did not like, nor did she take kindly to subtle and not too subtle hints about who should bask in the glory of the crown after her. In fact, she grew even more obstinate on this question in her later years when she became too old to conceive. It confounded her contemporaries, and modern historians still debate why she would not name an heir. In those years, while she still glistened and gleamed and thrived, she was perhaps not inclined to relinquish even the smallest spark of light, spotlight, to a named heir. This was not just a question of vanity. History had shown that coexistence between a living ruler and a living heir could prove a challenge. Way back in 1170, Henry II of England had publicly named his son, also called Henry, his heir, and had even had him crowned as the young Henry. Yet Henry II never gave over any power to his son, and this led to tension, strife, and ultimately open warfare between sovereign and heir. It had been a costly conflict which had done so much harm to the peace of England. In Elizabeth's time, no one wished for such a state of affairs in a realm which had suffered so brutally during the Wars of the Roses only a century in the past. But for the Kingdom of England to survive, a successor had to be found. Elizabeth's most obvious successor was James VI of Scotland. Elizabeth was a descendant of House Tudor, a noble family with old roots in Wales. House Tudor had ruled England and Ireland since the time of Elizabeth's grandfather, Henry VII, who won his crown after defeating Richard III, the very last of the Plantagenet dynasty. James of Scotland had Tudor blood coursing through his veins too, courtesy of his great-great-grandmother, Margaret Tudor, sister to Henry VIII. But James was first and foremost a steward of Scotland, son of Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots, whom Elizabeth reluctantly had had executed in 1587 for conspiring against the English crown. So there was so much baggage right there. And all this was on Elizabeth's mind as she lay ill at the start of 1603. Mary, 
Queen of Scots, had conspired with Elizabeth's Catholic subjects to take the crown of England and return England to the fold, as it were, to the Holy Roman Church. James, Mary's son, was Protestant, so there would be no religious turmoil on his accession. But if Elizabeth had acknowledged him as heir during her lifetime, would the tentative peace with her Catholic subjects fail as they turned to James out of loyalty and memory of his mother? And what would that have of consequences? Might he, with their backing, have forced Elizabeth to grant him more powers than she was willing in order to keep peace in the realm? It was well known already during the 1590s that James considered himself Elizabeth's obvious and natural heir, and it was equally, if more ominously known, that he was impatient to acquire the wealthy country of England as his domain. It was Elizabeth's greatest concern that an heir would set up a rival court to her own and gather men around them who should otherwise have been loyal to her. Had she publicly declared James VI as her heir, he would have been more than able to rival her in glory and importance even during her lifetime. For one thing, he may have had to wait for the crown of England to be his but he was in fact already an anointed king. And James already had connections inside Elizabeth's court through the complicated familial ties which bound the high nobility together in the medieval and early modern age. James was, in other words, a man, a cousin, a lord, a king who had military diplomatic and familial advantages which could have propelled him to a position of equal footing with Elizabeth, and that surely would have undermined Elizabeth's own base of power and her ability to rule supreme in her own realm. And it must also be acknowledged that James, simply by being a man, would have accrued many easy favours, regardless of the fact that Elizabeth had far more personal charisma, political flair, and had ruled for many years. But I do think that James's most potent advantage was that he had a family. By 1600, James VI had two sons, which is to say he had an heir and a spare, as the saying goes. He also had a daughter, Elizabeth, and a wife, Anne, who was the daughter of King Frederick II of Denmark. And apart from the very obvious visual and social-cultural significance of presenting as a family, he also had, by way of his own marriage, important foreign connections to a kingdom that was slowly coming to the fore at that time. With this, James represented stability. He had an heir who would continue the family line. He had connections who could muster an enviable navy if the need arose. And he had a daughter who could, and eventually would, further his continental connections. And up against that, what could Elizabeth show for the future of the realm? Though she had ruled well in her first many decades, 
It was becoming clear by the late 1590s that she would leave the kingdom in debt. And in fact, James would inherit Elizabeth's personal debt of £420,000, the equivalent of around £36 million purchasing pounds today. It had also become apparent during the 1590s that there was growing discontent in England as taxes increased to pay for the cost of the Spanish wars in the previous decade. This, the increased taxes, was compounded by a series of poor harvests, internal strife within the Privy Council, which was the governing body of the realm and a general decline in the standard of living for labourers and urban folk of the middling sort, that is to say, the middle classes. By the late 1590s, Elizabeth's golden years were politically in the past, and this caused many to ever more publicly wonder, why then did she do nothing to at least secure a smooth transition of power? But viewed from Elizabeth's perspective, had she given in to pressure to name James VI as her heir, it might have ended in not securing a smooth transition, but inadvertently ended in handing over power before her time. For James would have come in younger, more vigorous, and far more interested in the future than in her illustrious past and those around her would likely then flock to be around him, even if that meant leaving England physically to bow before James in Scotland, where Elizabeth, or rather where Elizabeth's counsellor, William Cecil's vast network of spies, could not as easily listen in on conversations. That could prove dangerous for Elizabeth, who was all too aware of the harm just one person could do if they gathered supporters around them in defiance of Elizabeth. James's mother, after all, Mary Queen of Scots, had attempted to set herself up as a rival queen, and Elizabeth's favourite for many years, Robert Dudley, an impulsive adventurer who favoured quick action in contrast to Elizabeth's slower tactics, well, he ended up leading a pitiful coup in 1600, and this grasp for power ultimately led to his head being separated from his body as he was executed in 1601, once again leaving Elizabeth I one step away from being alone. All these incidents were cautionary tales in Elizabeth's mind on how not to lift up favourites to key positions or allow others to gain power. And this might go some way, then, in explaining why Elizabeth's stubbornness, especially in her later years, was so difficult to get around and so difficult for her counsellors. And while she did nothing, perhaps in fear of being outshone, outmaneuvered, and outpowered. Her counsellor, William Cecil, started his own manoeuvring towards finding an heir before Elizabeth passed away. So he resorted to what he did best, spying and collecting evidence. Next week, we shall continue as William Cecil, Elizabeth's counsellor and spy master general, 
secretly negotiates with Elizabeth's rival on the question of succeeding to the English crown, and a dying Elizabeth reveals, or not, whom she thinks should follow her as sovereign of England. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please leave a like wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps the podcast grow and be seen amongst the algorithms of the world. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.